morning. Change gears a little bit this morning. We're going to talk about uh, Paul's views and usage of Scripture. I'm excited about this class in the next week or two as we get to do this because uh, I think it's something that a lot of the material we've covered before in different forums and in different places, but some of this answers some questions people have come up to me and had uh, after some of those classes. And so uh, it'll be kind of fun to go through that. I think this will be an interesting time. I've brought some show and tell. And so um, we'll have a chance to look. When I was a law school student, one of the required courses at Texas Tech University was called um, Legal Research and Writing. And what Legal Research and Writing was, was uh, basically to teach us how to think and, and do the necessary groundwork to be um, lawyers. As a lawyer, you're often called upon to write a memorandum for someone else or to, to, to legally research out some area of the law. You might have to write what we call a, a brief in front of a, a court uh, where you expound on the law to, to argue your position. And there's a specific class in law school where they teach it. And it's interesting to me the way it's done, especially now that I'm a lawyer and I look back on what they taught us. See, law school changes the way you think. When I talk to law school students, uh, I always tell them, if you want to be successful, at least in the kind of law that, that I practice, which is trial law, courtroom law, uh, you need to try and remember what it's like to be a human. It's, it's not easy to do. Because law school does change the way you think. It, it really does. You, you notice it gradually, but you notice it. I remember realizing how much it had changed me one morning over breakfast when I was reading the warranty on the toaster. <laughs> and I was enjoying it. <laughs> That's not normal. It's just not. Well, they, they teach you in law school how to do research so that you can find the authority to support your position. And when you find that authority, they teach you how to write in exacting detail by this specific form uh, the, the citation so that you don't just say it's Smith versus Jones. You have... You, you tell the court exactly where it is and it's got to be in this certain form and it's all precise and you fail the course if you have a comma out of place or something like that. That may be an exaggeration, but they grade you severely on having every comma and every period. Not only do you have to find your authority, but after you found it, you have to do something we call shepherdize because there are a set of books originally by a some outfit or a person named Shepherd that took every case that's ever been decided in American court system and gives the history of that case after it was decided. So I can't go say, hey, Smith versus Jones said this way back in 1963 without shepherdizing that case to see if maybe someone didn't say in 1969 Smith versus Jones is wrong. You've got to make sure your research is up to date. When you quote a case as a lawyer, 
you have to quote it exactly right. I remember a time we were up in a federal court in Texarkana in Judge David Folsom's court. And we had a big hearing and we argued our motions. And afterwards, the judge says, I want to see the lead counsel for each party in my chambers. He had a very stern look on his face and, and in his voice. We all went back there very gingerly because it was clear he was chewing either one or all of us out. We got back there and he turned to the lawyer against me who was one of the most respected and one of the best lawyers I know. He's a phenomenal lawyer uh, who, who does top quality work. And he looked at him and he said, do you know who wrote your brief? And that lawyer, whose name was on it, said, well, I, I don't, I, I, yes, I know, but, but you know, my name's on it, but I'll be honest and tell the court I didn't write it. The court said, oh, I know you didn't write it. Do you know who wrote it? He said, well, yes, I know the people in the firm who did. Why? The judge says, because they took some quotations out of context. Do they think I'm such a poor judge that I won't go back and pull whatever they quote to see if they got it right? Do they think I'm that lazy? Don't ever bring that product in front of me again. Whoever it is that wrote it is not allowed to write in my court. We as lawyers are trained. It's one reason I do put footnotes on these lessons. We're trained to go back and check. When, I, when I'm preparing these classes, if I'm reading a book like the Bible, a history, the making and impact of the Bible, and I read some statements that say, oh, this so-and-so, Eusebius said this in the 300s, or as Justin Martyr wrote, I've got to tell you, before I use those in this class, I go back and pull the original because I want to compare them. I don't want to just take their word for the fact that Justin Martyr said it. I've got to read it from Justin Martyr. And then I'll put it in the lesson. That's the way lawyers do things. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's interesting because you find out an amazing number of people do not quote things properly. Usually it's innocuous. They missed a comma. They flipped the word order, but it happens. Now, when we go to the Bible, when I go to the Bible and I read, I, I, I see Paul quoting the Old Testament and referencing the Old Testament a lot. But when I look at Paul and the way he references the Old Testament, it would not be fair for me to hold Paul to the standards that lawyers are required to adhere to because he wasn't writing as a lawyer for lawyers. Paul's writing, moved by the Spirit of God to address problems in the culture and day in which he was writing. He did not write to meet the grammar or the research requirements of 21st century America. And so it's one of those reasons when we read the Bible, we want to read it as good students, understanding it in the context in which it's written, and then applying it to ours. And in the process, it opens up our minds to understanding a lot more of what God's got in the world beyond the little portion of this planet we inhabit.
You with me? So with that, let's look at Paul's views of Scripture and how Paul used Scripture, not just today, but we'll look at it again next week. Today is basically a foundation day. It's a foundation class. We're going to build the building next week, but there are some things we all need to know. And so we're going to set forms, we're going to set our steel, we're going to dig our, our uh, beams, and we're going to pour a foundation today. This is a class that's going to help us as we look at this next week. Today's goals are threefold. First, let's just make sure we're all on the same page on where and how Paul used the Old Testament. Those were his scriptures. How did he use them? Where did he use them? Second thing, from that, can we determine what Paul's view of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, um, what, what it was? How did Paul view them? And then third and finally, we're going to preview some areas next week because I want you to come. And if you have anybody who you know who has questions about the validity of Scripture or whose minds are interested in these types of things, ask them to come. We've got some empty seats. We'll set up more seats. Bring anybody who's got an interest in actually understanding how the Bible uh, 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 is, is put together or, or whether or not it's valid and, and, and may have challenges and questions in their minds because I'd like to address those next week. Okay, So this week, though, let's start with the first point. Where and how did Paul use the Old Testament? And there we begin. Uh, I need to know who has a Bible, not with you, but do you own a Bible? Who owns a Bible? By the way, if anybody doesn't own a Bible, come tell us. We've got some to give. Okay, everybody should own a Bible. I got lots of Bibles. I brought a couple. This is an NIV study Bible. In fact, this is one that we handed out when we started studying biblical literacy in this class so that everybody would have one. And uh, um, uh, this is a, a wonderful study Bible. The New International Version is what the NIV stands for. And it's a study Bible because it's got little study aids and helps in it, maps and comments and, and some things. Um, this is this is my English Standard Version, the ESV. This is what I use in this class. Now that we're teaching this class, this one uh, I can I call this roadworthy. It's got a good stiff back, so when it's in my travel bag or in my briefcase, it doesn't easily crumple and ruin. Um, the pages, if you accidentally bend one the wrong way, they bend back. So it's, it's good. It's got big enough print to where if Becky needs to read it, I can <laughs> hand it to her. It's, um, it's got a concordance in the back because there are times where I have a mind blank. See, I, I write most of my lessons on the road. And so you, you, you're on an airplane, you don't have internet access, and you're sitting there thinking... Where does it say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? I, you, you forget where the, the most obvious ones are. You can, I, I, that's my do. So it's got a basic concordance in the back that helps me with that. And, and it's a, a wonderful travel book. Here's a new Bible I got. It's the Archaeological Study Bible. And this one has got a bunch of archaeological information and archaeological finds and it talks about the culture and the historical aspects and artifacts that have illuminated certain passages of Scripture. It's a fascinating study Bible. I love these Bibles. I love to collect Bibles. And, and I'm glad that I've got Bibles. But I think about Paul. 
Because Paul writes these letters, and when Paul writes letters, he's on the road. But he didn't have a roadworthy Bible to be taken around with him. Old Testament scriptures were on scrolls. And the scrolls that had the Old Testament scriptures were not the kind of things you just carry around with you. You don't have a car. You don't have a pick-em-up. You don't have, uh, uh, you know, Paul wasn't riding around on, a, on an extended cab chariot. He's, he's, he's lugging this stuff. I nearly died carrying the books from over there to over here before class. I fell down half the steps. Two of them anyway. Paul, and, and here's a reduced size of a scroll. This dates from the 1400s. But this scroll is the book of Esther. Not a long book. But the scroll's still pretty long. I mean, here, you want to help me here? Come stand up right here. Well, let's read Esther. You know, if I'm going to quote from Esther and this is my scroll, I'm going to quote from the beginning of Esther. <laughs> this scroll is made from parchment, animal skin. And uh, it's before, it dates from the 1400s, which is before the printing press. You can see how the skin's been sewn together. Let's see if we can do this. Y'all are welcome to come up and look at this after class. But you can see here, see how the skins are sewn together? Right through there. You can see the threads. Um, this is just Esther. Each of these Hebrew books would be written on different scrolls. Oh, some of the minor prophets were all combined on a scroll. But uh, uh, you, you didn't take scrolls like that. Paul's not walking around with a dozen Hebrew scrolls, more than a dozen, to have his old Old Testament with him. Now, I'm sure in certain towns and places where he went, the synagogues would have had scrolls that he could have used if he'd been in the good graces of the synagogue. Oh, sorry, thank you. But most of those synagogues kicked him out within a few days. They weren't into letting him use their scrolls to convince people to leave their synagogue. And so, you know, Paul's there, and, and what's he do? Yet we read Paul, and when we read Paul, we see Paul quoting Scripture over and over and over again. Now, I suggest Paul probably had some of the Old Testament that he took with him some of the time. He does say in 2 Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books, and the word books there, biblios, really meant scrolls at the time, and above all the parchments. So bring the cloak, but bring my scrolls, and above all the parchments. Parchments... Um, that's what this Esther scroll is made out of. Uh, parchment was uh, uh, developed around 500 B.C. Uh, over in Asia, uh, Turkey, Asia Minor. It's real interesting how they make it. They would take animal skins. Before parchment, most writing was done either in, in clay or on papyrus from Egypt. But papyrus would break and crumble real easy as it dried out. We get paper from that word, papyrus. Parchment, what they would do 
is they would take the skin of an animal, could be anything from a cow to a, a, a rabbit, and they would take the skin and they would try to scrape off some hair and scrape off any flesh from the inside, and they would basically dip it in water to clean it up and then put it in a lye water for a couple of weeks, L-Y-E, lye water, or water with lime in it. And then they'd get it out and they'd scrape more of the hair off. And then they'd dip it in water and they'd make it fresh and uh, pure water. And then they'd scrape it more and they'd start stretching it to dry it. And then they'd dip it back in lime water and they'd have this elaborate process. And eventually they'd, they'd string it up like they are doing there and they'd scrape it as thin as they needed it. And then they'd cut it into sheets that they would sew together for a scroll. As parchment started moving forward, eventually parchment would be gathered together into books. And originally books were called codexes. They were called codexes because there's a Latin word similar to codex that was what Latin, uh, what, what uh, Roman people would, would write with. It was kind of a book of sorts. It would have a block of wood that was uh, kind of hollowed out another block of wood that was hollowed out and they were tied together and where the wood was hollowed out they'd put wax inside it so you could take a stylus and you could write on the wax when you were done you could melt it and fill it back up and write all over again but these two wooden blocks that would be tied together and close up or open up was a codex so when parchment paper started getting thin enough people would take parchment and not just put it into scrolls but start sewing it together so that you kind of had a little book. The first reference we have to that's 98 A.D. And if you go back out of the 800 and some odd early codex books we have today, for the first 100 years or so of it, 200 years of it, all but 12 of them are Christian writings. They were the Christians that really started pushing books and it makes sense because if you do want to quote something out of Esther, isn't it easier to have a book than to unroll this puppy to try and find what it is you want to quote? Books made it easier to check authority and to read things and to go back and look at things. So, for example, I have brought with us or with me, um, well, let's wait before we get to that. How about... Uh, this is not an advertisement for Bible Works, but Bible Works is a great computer program. We've now got this. Let me show you what I'm holding here. This is not only the Bible. It's the Bible in virtually every translation you can get. It's the Bible in Hebrew. It's the Bible in Greek. It's a bunch of commentaries. And it all fits on a couple of CDs. And you can put this on your computer and you can say, I want every time the Hebrew word um, ritziti appears. And it'll pull it up. You say, I want to know every time. It's a wonderful concordance along with other tools. These we have now. If I wanted to talk to you about how often Paul mentions the word God, I can type it into my computer and it will pull up every verse. It makes it so much easier for me to write a lesson that's just chock full of Scripture and feel comfortable that I'm finding the Scriptures that I need to find for the lesson.
But Paul, he didn't have that. Um, Paul didn't have Bible Gateway. You don't need to buy this. Bible Gateway is free. www.biblegateway.com An incredible search engine. You need to know about it. You need to use it. It's great for finding that verse. So without these tools, Paul writes. And he writes letters that are loaded with Old Testament Scripture. In his letters, Paul quotes the Old Testament 93 times. Now, this painting we've used before, do you recognize it? It's called Paul sitting at his desk writing his letters or something like that. It's painted around 1600 by this fella named Valentine de... Well, it's full of baloney. And let me tell you why. Even though I like the picture. Um, Paul didn't have books. See? Lower left-hand corner? That book? This is clearly 150 years after Gutenberg's invented the printing press. Paul did not sit there and write his letters with an open Bible... Maybe a scroll falling off the edge of the table and a couple of reference books. Paul didn't have a concordance to help him find the scriptures. Paul didn't have uh, 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 any of these tools that we've got today. And yet Paul quotes the Old Testament 93 times. That's a lot. That's a lot. I would suggest to you he knew his Old Testament in his memory incredibly well. How many of us in this room do you think could even quote 93 verses from the entire Bible, much less the Old Testament? And he's doing it at a time where they didn't have chapter and verse designations. Paul... Yeah, I really want to emphasize that. Paul had an incredible command of Scripture in his head. We would call someone like that a pencil head. I think we would have called him a scroll head. Let me show you what he did in the Old Testament. Here's the fact sheet on it. 93 quotes from 16 different Old Testament books. Some of us in this room would have trouble naming 16 Old Testament books. Most of us could do it, but some of us couldn't. Huh? 33 times he quotes from the Pentateuch. Penta means five. A pentagram is a five-pointed star, right? Five, penta. The Pentateuch are the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Paul quotes from, they're called the Torah, the Law, by the Hebrews. Paul quotes from those more than any other section of Scripture 33 times. Paul quotes from Isaiah 25 times. Paul quotes from the Psalms 19 times. And most of these quotes are found in either Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, or Galatians. 
you've got a chart at the back of your lesson that I've attached that shows you where he's quoting and which scriptures he's quoting. I'll go into the chart in more detail later, but the chart itself also shows what version Paul's using when he quotes. For Paul had multiple versions at his command, as we do today. So, that's where uh, and how Paul used his Old Testament. Now I want to go to... Let's look at that for a moment. And I want to look at it in two different lights. I want to consider what Paul actually said about the Old Testament. But in addition to looking at what Paul actually said, I want to talk about how he then used it in addition to what he said. What did Paul say about the Old Testament? Well, we know because we're Bible students and we've used this as a point for home many times in this class. Paul said the scriptures were breathed by God. Remember the passage out of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God should be competent, equipped for every good work. We've got that scripture. Paul says it's God-breathed. But let's take a moment and make sure we understand both sides of that coin. God-breathed means that they're filled with life and vitality. Think about it. God fashioned Adam and Eve. God fashioned man from the dirt, Adam from the dirt. And what does it say? The scriptures say God breathed into him life and he became a living being. God breathing brought life to Adam. If God does not breathe into our Bible, if this word of God is not God breathed, it's a collection of letters and words. But by being breathed out by God, it has life, it has vitality, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it speaks, it lives. And that's one aspect of what Paul means when he says that Scripture was breathed out by God. There's a second aspect, and that is, Scripture came from God. The scrolls that Paul knew as Scripture were scrolls that had their origin from Almighty Creator God. And that's what Paul has to say. Now what else does Paul say? Paul also says that Scriptures were God's words for the needed time and place. In Scripture, you have a word from God that can meet your needs. If you're having problems, if you're having questions, if you're having challenges, if your faith is wavering, you can turn to Scripture and have God speak to you through the Scripture. Paul said it this way, the Jews had an advantage over the Gentiles because they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, his readers knew what oracles were. In the Greek world, you would go to Delphi to consult if you had the time and money, if you really had a big-time question. The oracle at Delphi was the most uh, uh, 
authoritative one to speak for the gods within the concept of Greek religion. Paul says these are the very words of God that answer your questions and your needs when you have them. You don't need to go ask and consult the oracle at Delphi when you have scripture. You turn to scripture and let God speak to you through those scriptures that he has already breathed life into. What else does he say? Paul says the scriptures are God's tool. God's tool in our life to instruct us and to give us hope. Do you need instruction? Do you need hope? I have uh, uh, one of my daughters, two of my daughters in here today. And it's my hope and prayer as they get older. Hi, they're waving. It's my hope and prayer as they get older, they'll continue to learn what we in the house try to teach them. And that is, it's from God's Word that we get instruction. And it's from God's Word that we get hope. And it's from God's Word that we get the tools that we need to live. Here's the way Paul said it in Romans. Paul said, For whatever was written in former days, he's talking about the Old Testament here, was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. God's given you something to encourage you, to instruct you, and to give you hope. Now, real hope. Not hope like, I hope I win the lottery. I'm talking hope that sees you through darkness, that sees you through difficulty, that sees you through stress. Hope is found in his word. And this is what Paul gives us. Paul used scripture. How did he use it? He used it to support and he used it to explain what he was teaching. Scripture was not always just proof. It wasn't always just support. Paul wasn't always trying to use scripture to prove his point. Sometimes he would use it to explain his point. Let's look at some samples. In Romans chapter 2, Paul wants the, the, the Romans to realize that whether they're Greeks or whether they're Jews, Jews and Gentiles alike, doesn't matter what they are, they're under sin. Sin has control of them and it has control of their lives. So Paul says it, but after he says it, he says, uh, now look at Psalm 14, 1 through 3, look at Psalm 5, 9, look at Psalm 10, 7, look at Isaiah 59, 7 and 8, and Psalm 36, 1. Of course, they didn't have those numbers, so he can't quote the numbers, but he quotes the passages, and he quotes them uh, in the order that I've put them up there for you. And so we can go to Romans chapter 2. And we can find Paul doing that very thing. Paul says, see where it says, what then? He says, are we Jews any better off? Not at all. We've already charged that all Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written... And here's where he starts with the Psalms. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. And he goes on and on and on quoting these passages of Scripture. He's quoting them both to support what he's saying as well as to, to explain what he means. Then in chapter 4, he starts talking about how all of us are justified by faith. And the way he does it is by saying, go to Genesis 15, 6 and read about Abraham, whose faith was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. Paul continues uh, uh, in this vein and says, look at David and what he wrote in Psalm 32, because he writes how blessed it is that, that righteousness is given as opposed to earned. He says, look, don't forget Genesis 17, 5, because it says the same thing. And it's only after he says all of this that he's able to apply it to the people. And he's able to say, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace through God. But before he applies it to the people, he goes to Scripture. And he finds Scripture after Scripture after Scripture to support what he has to say. Now, like I said, his form is not, it doesn't meet what we call blue book in legal community. You lawyers out there, Moriarty, where are you? You remember that, the blue book. They're on the 18th edition now. This is put out by the Harvard Law Review. It's the form most lawyers have to use for citations. It's a book an inch thick that's got every conceivable rule for how you should put every comma and period in the right place. Paul's not doing that. But it's not stopping him from using it in the way it would have been used in his day and in his age. And using it over and over and over again. Paul will do it by starting out saying, it is written. And he'll quote, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He doesn't just start out with it is written. Sometimes he'll refer to it by saying, the law said, like, I would now uh, not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, quote, you shall not covet. See, Sometimes he'll introduce scripture by saying, the scripture says, and he'll call it scripture. For example, Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Sometimes Paul introduces his quote by, from the Old Testament simply by saying, God said. If you look at 2 Corinthians 6, 16, he says, this is where he's talking about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. He says, we're the temple of the living God. As God said, I, as God said, I'll make my dwelling among them. And he's quoting Leviticus 26 there. As God said. So did this brings up this question. Did Paul consider the Old Testament binding? I've been asked this by a number of you before after some of these classes. Okay, well if Paul's using the scripture in that way and Paul relies on the scripture, why are we not worshiping on the Sabbath? Why don't we keep those dietary laws? Did Paul consider the Old Testament binding? Well, I've got to answer that yes, and I've got to answer that no. Paul did treat the Old Testament as instructive on the issues of ethics and morals. He went to the Old Testament time after time after time to explain how we should ethically and morally behave. If you look again in, in, in Romans in this sense, he says in Romans 12, don't avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written. 
Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. That's from Deuteronomy 32. So Paul's quoting the Old Testament to justify and explain his morality that he expects the people to follow. And, and he does it. Uh, dietary and religious ritual? No, not binding there. The dietary laws and circumcision and, and, and Old Testament forms of worship, uh, those Paul never considered binding. In fact, he goes so far as to say, you don't want to, 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 you know, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains in Romans 14.3. Later on in Romans 14, he says, some of you treat one day as a special holy day, others don't. Don't despise each other and don't cause the other person to sin by the way you exercise your, your, your freedom. To the Galatians, he's saying, hey, you better watch it. You think circumcision's necessary. If you think it's necessary to become a ritual Jew in order to be a Christian, then you're in deep trouble. That's the way he lays it out. Now, what version did Paul use? Well, it's interesting. Paul had the Septuagint. That was the Greek version of the Old Testament. But I've got to tell you something. There were a bunch of them. Origen, about 100 years or so after Paul, he writes a, 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 the first study Bible. And in it, he puts in columns the different versions of the Septuagint. If we were to take a Septuagint, this is a Septuagint. This is a, a Greek Old Testament translated by the Jews into Greek from Alexandria, Egypt. And so this is all Greek, even though this is uh, Isaiah. Up here it says Isaiah. See? Isaiah. So this is Isaiah. But if you look down at the bottom of this, see all of this gobbledygook? Of course you're all saying, well, that whole book's Greek to me. Um, but if you look down here, it'll tell you things. It'll say like, uh, this is the word akusate, which is uh, you hear and, and, and it says, that's found in manuscript A. That's Septuagint A. And this passage in verse 24, that's found in Septuagint B, version B. Because different copies had different versions. Why? Well, first of all, we're dealing with a translation from the Hebrew. And you've got different scholars who are doing the translations and some of them might say, I think it says this. And some of them might say, well, I think a better word for it is that. So Paul's got at his disposal different versions of this, the, the Greek translation. And Paul's a Greek scholar and a Hebrew scholar. I don't think it's beyond conception that he translates a few of them himself sometimes. Because he knows what that Hebrew means. Paul had his Hebrew with him too. He could throw his Hebrew out there and, and quote from the Hebrew, except he's putting it into Greek. But we can tell where he does it. You know, if, if our oldest Hebrew manuscript, that's really the whole thing, is called the Leningrad Codex. It dates from 1000. And, and it's a parchment book. And I, this is a photographic reproduction of it. You're welcome to come look at. It dates from 1000. We also had the Aleppo Codex, which dates from about 100 years earlier but it's not nearly as thorough. It doesn't contain nearly as much. But I'll have these up here for you to look at them. I'll tell you that what happened to, to us is we hit a point where we now had the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. You can buy a Dead Sea Scrolls Bible. 
that shows you some different readings that the Dead Sea Scrolls have on some passages of Scripture. Uh, no, it does not have seashells. But it does have sea scrolls. She sold sea scrolls by the seashore. The, but I, I tell you this because this is your tease for next week. Next week, we're going to ask some questions about this that we've provided a foundation for today. But we're going to ask, why don't Paul's quotes match up word for word every time? You can read something in Paul's quotes and go back and read it in your own Bible and the words seem different sometimes. Why? We're going to ask why sometimes Paul, it looks like he's quoting scripture and we can't find it in the Old Testament. Did Paul have different scriptures? No. Not really. But I want to tease you. I want you to come back and see why I say that. Paul has some really surprising interpretations of Scripture, too. He gets some stuff out of there that I'm not sure most of us would have gotten. And I want to look at those. So this is where we're going. Here are your points for home. Number one, God said. I don't want those questions to leave you questioning. Paul never questioned. This is the Word of God. God gave life to this and God uses this to minister to us. God said it. Number, point for home number two. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Let me tell you, I've heard people say, in fact, I'm guilty of saying, I stand on the Bible. I'm not going to say it anymore, I hope. I'm going to say, I stand under the Bible. Because of the point that was made, I don't ever want to be accused of going to the Bible to find things to I, I, I don't want to find passages and put my reading onto those passages. I don't ever want to go to the Bible and let the Bible be something that supports me. I want to go to the Bible, find out what it says, and I want to stand under it. You, you see a difference there? I may not be making it too clear, but I don't have time to clarify it more today. Last point. All scriptures breathed out by God. So uh, let's put some in our brain, huh? When we were little, if you grew up in a lot of church homes, you had Bible verses you memorized. That's not such a bad thing. I could use a Bible verse now and then. So we have a collection of little business cards that have Bible verses on them that are so small I can't read them. But uh, these are 11. I asked Dale Hearn to pick out 11 of his favorite verses of Paul. And we've got them here. And they're random, so let's just put them in a row and let's pass them out real quick. Let's get them going. Um, I want you to take one. I want you to, to put it in your pocket, your purse, and do not ignore it. I want you to remember it, memorize it. And uh, um, yeah, let's get some over here because I'm going to start praying and everybody's going to start leaving. So we could get them started on both sides. I'll tell you what, God has an incredible ability to pay attention to us while we're praying. So I may pray while we're doing this. Well, I'm not going to. We're going to wait one extra minute. God's paying attention to us. We should pay attention to him. I teach my children to turn off their music when they pray. Heaven forbid I stand up here and say, hey, y'all pass these cards out while I'm praying. I will tell you a little lawyer trick, though. <laughs> Lawyers, one of the things we like to do is hand stuff to the jury for the jury to read or look at. 
And one of the things a lot of lawyers will do is they'll say, Your Honor, may I publish this to the jury? And the judge will say yes. And they'll hand it to the jury, first juror, and the jurors will start reading it and they'll pass it around. Well, that means that the jurors aren't paying attention to everything you're saying from that point on. So do you know what good lawyers do? When we're done and the other side's about to start, we say, Your Honor, that concludes my time with this witness, but I would like to publish this to the jury so they can read it. And we hand it. And while the other fellow or ladies up there doing their thing, all those jurors are sitting there saying, Yeah, son of a gun, he was right. Freebie. Okay, we did not get some back here. Thank you so much. So that's um, um, uh, this is very random. God, literally, God knows what passage you got. I do not. So if you got one that says, uh-oh, Mark, Mark thinks this, thinks this is me. Um, no, I don't, didn't know it. All right? Would you all pray with me? Lord, thank you for the day in which we live. Thank you that we have such a ready availability of, of your scriptures. Thank you that we have uh, your, your, your source of instruction and hope and comfort and direction so close at hand. Thank you that the Holy Spirit that ministers to us your hope does so not only in our spirits and hearts, but does so through your word that he's provided for us. I pray that you'll help us grow in respect and appreciation of what you've given us. And that you'll touch each one of us to really commit to memory more of your Bible than we ever have before. At least this verse that we've been given this week. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.